Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 170 of the coronavirus crisis and tonight a major breakthrough in the fight against COVID-19. I was able to wean the patient's paralytic agents and wean sedatives and start to wean the patient from the ventilator. It's pretty dramatic. A new weapon in the fight against COVID-19 raises hope worldwide. Plus, Airlines get set for a major policy change this week. Wear a mask or else. And new information tonight about members of Congress tapping into the PPP pipeline. The CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Tuesday night. We get to that big breaking story in just a moment. We will speak with Dr. Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. But there's another big story this evening, and that is major airlines now ramping up enforcement of new rules requiring passengers to wear face coverings on planes. Our Phil LeBeau live in Chicago this evening with the very latest. Phil, what's the story? Scott, those are rules that the airlines set in place, most of them anywhere from three to four weeks ago. And the overwhelming majority of passengers do wear masks, both in the airport and on planes. But Increasingly, there are complaints that some passengers have said, you know what, I'm not going to wear it when I'm in the middle of a flight, even though it's required by the airline. So what you have right now are the airlines putting more pressure on the passengers to wear face masks. They're just not putting pressure. They're outright requiring it. The crews say, again, the vast majority of the passengers are wearing the mask. So here's what's going on. You have to wear your mask, ticketing, boarding, in-flight, basically from the minute you get to the airport to the minute you leave the airport. Noncompliance is reported internally. So if you're on a flight and you decide you're not going to wear it, they're going to tell the home office, and the next time you try to book a ticket, you're probably on the restricted travel list, which means you won't be able to fly. Now, most airports around the United States, they are asking passengers to wear those masks. Though we have talked to people who have been at major airports, whether it's O'Hare, LaGuardia, etc., and they say, look, there's probably about 10% of the people walking around the airport who are not wearing masks right now. All of this comes as more people are flying. As you take a look at the airline index, the number of passengers this last week, 3.1 million. That's an increase of 24.7% compared to last week. Finally, take a look at shares of American and United. We could really put any of the airlines up here. It's been a very turbulent uh, month, to say the least, for these guys. But all of them now, Scott, are saying we are requiring masks when you come on board. The bigger issue that these airlines are facing, what passengers will see when they fly, when they land and they get to the gate, people aren't practicing social distancing. It's just like before. Get up and get out of that plane and everybody goes into the aisle. Phil, the airlines say they're requiring it. What happens if passengers don't comply? Well, you won't get on the flight, first of all. Almost every airline is saying you have to have it when you're boarding the flight. So, A, when you go through ticketing, you should, you should, almost all of them require it. They all are requiring it when you're boarding. And then let's say you wear it and then you get on board and you're like, yeah, you know what, this is for the birds. They will say something. And they will probably ask you two or three times. If you refuse to do it, they're not going to sit there and fight you on this. They'll simply phone it into the home office. And the next time you go to book a ticket, they may say, you know what, Scott? You are not following the rules, so you're not able to book that ticket. 
That's interesting. Phil, thank you for the very latest. Phil LeBeau from Chicago Force covering the airlines. Let's talk more about these policies. Dr. James Merlino is the chief clinical transformation officer at the Cleveland Clinic. He's helping advise United Airlines with their policies. Sarah Nelson is international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Good to have you with us. Sarah, I begin with you. What do you think of these policies? Are these good for flight attendants? These policies are absolutely good for flight attendants. We need to have everyone wearing masks. As we know, uh, this is an issue where if we're all doing it, we're all safer. And so we need to be very clear with the traveling public about this. What is concerning to us is that this has not come from a government initiative because it would be much more effective if this were a government regulation, like we saw after 9-11. There were safety parameters put into place right after 9-11 to address the traveling public's concerns around security and safety following those events. In this case, we need to do the exact same. And if we are communicating from the government and from the industry as well, then that gives the people on the front lines a lot more backing to be able to make sure that this is implemented correctly and that it's not being put on our backs to be the enforcers. Yeah. Dr. Merlino, how did you advise United? What did you tell them? We told them that absolutely wearing masks for the passengers was the right thing to do. Look, masks protect us from each other, and we cover everybody up with a mask. We greatly reduce the potential spread of the COVID virus if people are shedding it. So this is about really creating an environment where we're decreasing the spread in a very confined space where we have difficulty with social distancing, which obviously you can't do on an airplane. What about, Dr. Merlino, the lack of, say, a unified policy, if you will, the kind that Sarah brings up? Well, I applaud the airlines for taking the action to require it, because as Phil said earlier, the vast majority of people are wearing masks, but we really need to up the enforcement because everybody needs to comply. And I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Sarah, we've come a long way uh, in the last few months from almost nobody flying at all. Now you're seeing, as Phil just told us, um, added flights, a larger number of passengers, Can you take us into the mindset right now of the flight attendant on the plane and what they're thinking about, how they're feeling themselves? Well, this is a very uncertain time. We're concerned about our safety and health, of course, and we know that we're uh, putting ourselves at risk every time we come to work. These policies are giving us uh, a lot more confidence. And what we're concerned about now is that we need to make sure that the traveling public is clear about these policies so that everyone gets used to a new way of flying and has confidence in buying those tickets again. And frankly, that we are putting in place policies across uh, the board through the federal government uh, to make sure that people are staying in their jobs, that we're addressing these unemployment numbers. We're concerned about an economy that doesn't support an airline industry as well. So <laughs> we're concerned across the board. It starts with safety and security so that people understand that there's a confidence in buying an airplane ticket. But then we also need the means for people to be able to buy those tickets, too. Dr. Molino, it's an interesting question of all the safety precautions that one can take in getting on an airplane. I can't forget the story of the a doctor who worked for NBC here in New York who got the virus, even though he said he followed all the precautions when he had to take a flight. Granted, this was maybe six or so weeks ago. He said he wore a mask and yet he still caught the virus. What does that say about the safety of flying, even with the precautions? 
Yeah, I think it's safe to fly right now, Scott, and I think it's important for people to follow the precautions because that will protect them. One thing that we learn by taking care of patients with COVID in hospitals is that we know how to keep caregivers and patients and visitors safe. And if we put together the right standards, we will protect people. You know, it's interesting because when you look across the country, flying was definitely down as a result of COVID, but there was still a lot of flying. There were still people on airplanes. We didn't have the safety precautions, and we haven't read about stories where clustering occurred on an airplane. So I think that most of the spread with COVID right now is happening out in the community. There's no direct evidence that people are getting infected by airplanes. I think if we put the safety precautions in place and people follow them, and as Sarah noted, this is the new normal. We are now living in an environment with COVID until there's a treatment or until there's a vaccine. And it's incumbent on all of us to work together to follow the rules so that we're protecting each other. We know how to do this. If people follow the rules, if they wear masks, if they keep their hands clean, uh, we can protect people. Dr. Merlino, appreciate the time. Sarah Nelson as well will be following this developing story. My thanks to you both tonight. Let's bring in now uh, Scott Gottlieb. He's the former head of the FDA, now a CNBC contributor. He's advising American Airlines on their own policy. Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you tonight. What about what the airlines are saying about masks? How should uh, this be taken by passengers who are thinking about flying? Well, look, I think it's prudent. Um, this is a way that passengers can protect themselves and also reduce the risk to others on the airplane. There's a limited number of things that you can do as a passenger. This is one of them. I think it's prudent of the airlines to try to require these masks. They can't mandate it across the board. Um, but as Phil LeBeau said, they can uh, you know, limit the ability of passengers to travel if they're non-compliant with this policy. Quality of masks matters. So if you can get your hands on a better quality mask, you're going to be better protected. But the masks do reduce your risk of contracting COVID. I think ultimately the risk to individual passengers on a plane is low right now, and that's because the prevalence of infection around the country is low. And the risk is going to rise and fall with what the ultimate prevalence of infection is in the background. You think it's better to have one uniform policy, say, from the FAA or the National Transportation Safety Board that all of the airlines and all passengers have to follow rather than once again leaving it to the individual entities to make their own decisions? Well, look, the passengers have looked to the FAA to put in place uniform standards, for example, around fever checks. I'm not sure that the FAA is going to step in in timely fashion or wants to step in to mandate mask wearing. So the airlines are going to have to take some of these measures upon themselves. The airlines traditionally have never competed on safety. I think it's incumbent upon them to try to come together and put in place uniform safety measures across the industry. And this is one place where I think they should be working together. Let me switch our attention now to what is our top story tonight, and that is this potential breakthrough called groundbreaking, really in the fight against COVID-19. A steroid that is not new. It's been around for a, a long time, but in a study was shown to be effective. Can you comment on what this means and how we should think about the fight against this virus? Well, it's a very significant finding. Um, the uh, addition of dexamethasone, an old steroid in a large trial done in the United Kingdom and involved 11,000 patients, demonstrated that it could cut death of patients who are on ventilators by a third and cut the death rate of patients who require oxygen, so who are sick but don't require intubation, by one-fifth. This is a very meaningful finding, a very meaningful effect from the, the uh, addition of just a simple intervention, which is a single drug. COVID has two phases to it, essentially. The first is the viral response phase. It's the typical viral syndrome. You get a fever, you get a cough. A lot of people recover after that viral response phase. But some people go on in the second or third week to develop an inflammatory phase. And that's really the immune system's response to the virus. And you develop inflammation in your body 
particularly in your lungs. And it's that inflammatory phase that gets people in trouble. Those are the patients developing what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome and requiring hospitalization and oxygen in the hospital or intubation. And so this steroid treats that inflammatory response. We've long known that drugs that can interfere with that inflammatory response potentially could provide benefit, but we didn't think steroids could do it. So doctors were experimenting with a lot of different drugs. So this is a very significant finding today. What does it also say about the way that the virus was treated from the very start? Well, I think what's going to happen if we do have a second round of this virus in the fall is I think we're going to see death rates fall. We've learned how to treat this virus much more effectively. Um, The addition of this drug is going to certainly make a difference on hospital mortality. If you look at some of the New York City hospitals, once you got on a ventilator, the death rate was around 50 percent. In hospital mortality for COVID patients, once they were hospitalized, was about 20 percent. And so a lot of patients were succumbing to this infection once they became hospitalized, we're going to preserve much more life in the hospital, not just from the addition of this drug, but other interventions. So, for example, the anticoagulation, blood thinners that are now being used pretty widely are going to also reduce death because what we found is a lot of people who decompensate from COVID infection actually are developing blood clots to their lungs, and that's what's causing them to rapidly decline. What about remdesivir? Is this used in lieu of that? Can they be used together? How should we be thinking about that? I think ultimately they could potentially be used together. These drugs work very differently. Remdesivir acts directly on the virus. This acts on an inflammatory response from the virus. I mean, in an ideal setting, you would postulate that remdesivir would be used early in the course of the infection to prevent viral replication and reduce the amount of virus in the body. And then if you go on to develop this inflammation, then you would add this drug to reduce that inflammation. So potentially these two drugs could be used in combination um, to reduce death and disease from COVID. And this, this steroid we're talking about, the, the significance of it in the sense of, of going back to work, trying to get the economy back at, at full speed, if you can eliminate the prospects of, of either death or ventilator from the equation, that seems to be an extraordinarily significant development for most people. I think if we reduce the death rate from COVID, which I believe we will, I think that's going to give more people confidence Um, to go about their lives, not take unnecessary risks, but you have to take some risk if you're going to re-engage in the economy with COVID circulating in the background. If we know that we could preserve life through more advanced medicine, that's going to give more people confidence to re-engage. I want to ask you about an op-ed that's in the Wall Street Journal tonight by the vice president, uh, where Mr. Pence says panic about a, quote, second wave of the virus is, in his words, overblown. You share those thoughts? Well, we're certainly not in a second wave right now. What we're seeing in states like Texas, Arizona, Alabama, Florida, Georgia is basically outbreaks. This is really the first wave of the virus. These are states that were never that heavily affected. Now they're seeing an upsurge in cases as they reopen. Um, Texas announced today they're going to step in and take some actions in the city of Austin. The governor's counseling people to stay at home a little longer. So they're recognizing they have a problem and they'll probably slow their reopening and take some targeted mitigation steps. But this is really the first wave. The risk is a second wave in the fall. The risk is that as we get into September and October and we reopen in earnest, schools are back in session, colleges are, people come back from summer vacation and go back into the office setting. That's when we really risk a second wave. And as we enter the the flu season, um, the fall and the winter. And so that risk is pretty significant. If I was probability adjusting, you know, a second wave that was potentially worse than the first in terms of overall impact, I think you need to give that pretty, pretty reasonable odds, at least a third, at least 30 percent odds 
that we can experience a second wave just looking at the contours of this virus. A very small percentage of the country has been affected at this point, only about 5 to 7 percent. So this virus has a ways to go. This is a virus that, that by its own contours and characteristics, wants to infect 50 or 60 percent of the population, and it's going to try. The, the vice president is also writing tonight, he's, he's defending the opening of the country, saying that, uh, again, these are his words, all 50 states have begun to reopen in a, quote, safe and responsible manner. I mean, you've taken issue with the way that some states have opened in the, in the way that they have aggressively uh, pr pursued their next phase, even though they were having spikes in cases. Well, look, I wrote in the Wall Street Journal this week, I think we really had to reopen to think that these are really decisions that are being led by the political class. I think these decisions are being led by the people. People agreed to shut down. Um, they didn't want to engage in economic activity because of fear of the virus initially. And now they've been locked down for two or three months and they want to reengage in economic and social activity. And so policymakers are fitting policy around it. I think some states reopened uh, quickly, perhaps too quickly. Um, we need to do this in a staged fashion so that we can take measure of what the impacts are and take those targeted mitigation steps if we do see an upsurge in cases. And now we're seeing that upsurge in cases. It's incumbent upon us to try to trace those back to the sources and take steps to try to limit the spread that's underway. Because once you lose control of this, it's very hard to regain control. No state, I don't think, at this point has lost control. But I do think Arizona, Texas, Alabama, South Carolina, some of these states are approaching points where... You know, the, the virus is accelerating and they need to get a handle on this in the next week or two. Can you also explain to our viewers tonight why, why simply saying the increase in cases is just due to the fact that we're testing more um, is misleading? That doesn't go to the heart of the story as to why we're seeing spikes in certain places. Well, we're capturing more cases because we're testing more. So there is some truth to that. But the positivity rate's also going up, meaning that the percentage of people who are testing positive is increasing. And that's an indication that the virus itself is spreading to a wider portion of the population. So some portion of the increase in the positive cases is because the virus is more prevalent. The virus is spreading more widely. So it's not just that we're capturing more cases. The virus is actually affecting more people. And we know that from the data. You certainly see that in Arizona. You see positivity rates creeping up in Florida, Texas, Alabama. It's going up, South Carolina, North Carolina. So that's an indication that outbreaks are underway. You had mentioned, and you know this has been turned into somewhat of a partisan issue, and I wanted to get your opinion on something. It's some new data from CNBC and Change Research. It is coming out tomorrow, but I do have a, a sneak peek, if you will, tonight from our States of Play poll. It found that among likely swing state voters, 94% of Democrats are okay with wearing a mask, while only 37% of Republicans feel the same. Your reaction? Well, I think it's unfortunate that this is breaking down along party lines. I think some people see masks as a sort of affront to their personal liberty and a choice that's being made for them. I think people need to recognize this is really to protect them as well. I mean, this is a civic virtue. You're doing it to try to protect others in case you're the one who's asymptomatic and carrying the virus. But you're also doing it to protect yourself. And there's not much that we can do um, as individuals to prevent that second wave in the fall. There's a certain number of things that we can do to empower ourselves and reduce the risk overall of the population. And the masks are probably the simplest intervention that we can do on a wide scale to actually reduce the risk that this spreads again in the fall. Lastly, before we get to some tweets again, uh, news that Beijing is shutting down all of its schools today. Just wondering how you're thinking about that tonight as you look ahead to the fall, which is not that far away. Well, look, some countries have taken the position that, they, that there's zero tolerance for viral spread, and they'll take whatever actions necessary to crush this virus. 
China's done that, certainly. Germany's taken that position. um, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong. Other countries have taken the position, like the United States, that we're going to have to tolerate a certain amount of spread, that we're not willing to take the, the very aggressive measures and the impact that comes with that to crush the virus. And so we're going to try to thread a needle going into the fall that we can manage through a level of spread and not have it really flare up on us. Speaking of, of second waves, let me do one tweet uh, tonight, if I could. We had to cover a lot. We had some breaking news uh, as well. And it's number two on our list for the, for the folks in the back who are following. Uh, why was the second wave uh, worse than the first wave in the 1918 pandemic? Well, a variety of factors. They, they had a, a limit on healthcare personnel. I think there was a nursing shortage heading into the fall of that year. But largely because the first wave came about in the spring, April and May, they headed into the summer. There was a seasonal effect. And when it came back in the fall and the winter, it came back with more of a vengeance, as influenza does in the winter. So the setup was similar to this coronavirus in that they caught a break that they were heading into the summer during the first wave. And then it came back in the second wave heading into the winter. Appreciate your time, as always. Have a good night, Dr. Gottlieb. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb with us. More ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Why are all the recipients of those billions of dollars in PPP loans being kept under lock and key with little transparency? We're starting to find out tonight. Plus, the big decision from U.S. tennis on America's Grand Slam event. Before the break, our country on Tuesday night, June 16th. Welcome back. A strong day for stocks after a rebound in retail sales. The prospects for a possible virus treatment we talked about earlier and the hopes of more stimulus. The Dow rising 526 points today. S&P 500 and Nasdaq each adding nearly 2%. Take a quick look at futures now. See how the day can shake up tomorrow. And there it is, green across the board. On day 170 of the crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Apple is reopening 10 stores in New York City this week but by appointment only. The Eiffel Tower will reopen next week after being closed for three months, and the U.S. has extended its border closures with Canada and Mexico until July 21st. There's new backlash brewing over the Paycheck Protection Program. Reports say some members of Congress that opposed lending transparency proposals benefited from the business loan program. Our Kayla Tausche with us live following the money for us tonight. Kayla? Scott, good evening. The stimulus packages had strict conflict of interest rules for loans from the Treasury and the Federal Reserve, but not for the $670 billion of forgivable loans to small businesses. And the Treasury Secretary says the recipients of those loans will remain confidential. The Politico is reporting that at least four firms associated with lawmakers or their families received these small business loans, though one, Fiesta Restaurants, gave it back. The recipients included car dealers owned by Roger Williams, a Texas Republican 
Republican representing the Austin area who voted against efforts to disclose recipients of large loans. One of the dealers defended the move and told the Dallas Morning News in May, like millions of small businesses across America, our family-owned business was not immune to the economic damage caused by the government's shelter-in-place orders and the impacts of COVID-19. Jim Clyburn chairs the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus and is leading a new effort to get transparency here. He says we need to know who's getting these loans to determine whether they were actually eligible. What we're saying is uh, this money is supposed to go uh, to companies that need it, that need to keep people working. Uh, that's what we want. We don't want personal relationships, long-time relationships, to be the guiding forces here. Independent watchdogs have warned that the administration could be trying to kneecap them. In a letter to Congress, Michael Horowitz says that Treasury said that is his committee doesn't have the authority to police nearly a trillion dollars in spending. In the letter, it says if Treasury's interpretation of the CARES Act were correct, it would raise questions about the committee's authority to conduct oversight of these funds. It, this would present potentially significant significant transparency and oversight issues. But Scott, the letter asked Congress to take legislative action to make sure that does not remain the case. Can't make some of this stuff up, Kayla. Just to be clear here, we're saying there are members of Congress who opposed transparency about these loans, who actually benefited from the loans themselves. That is true, Scott. Now, to be sure, Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, said that many of these companies may be deserving. They may actually meet the criteria for these loans. But without knowing the full battery, the full catalog of companies in America who are receiving them, it's really hard to make that determination. Also, the bill uh, for this transparency that... Uh, Congressman Williams opposed, that would have made it public which companies got more than $2 million in loans, uh, but there is not really an effort underway to disclose anything below that. Scott? Appreciate it, Kayla. Kayla Tausch in D.C. following the money on a very important story tonight. The U.S. Open, which happens in August in New York, has gotten the go-ahead tonight without fans, however. The big question now is whether the players will show up. Let's bring in Tennis Channel President Ken Solomon. Ken, welcome back. It's nice to see you. Good to see you again, Scott. Thanks. USTA make the right decision here, do you think? Oh, I think so. Look, this has been calculated. This has been probably as interesting to watch for most people as, uh, as the U.S. Open itself. And I think they've got the protocols down. And, um, you know, it's a touchstone event for the country. And, uh, you know, if the governor of New York says it's OK and the USTA says it's OK, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's the right one. You obviously have a horse in this race. How much pressure did you personally put on the USTA to make this decision? Well, it wouldn't really matter if we did or we didn't. I don't think they'd be listening to us, although obviously uh, what we garner from the fans certainly is something they want to hear. But look, the reality is that we have been on with interim tennis while the tours have been on hold. And this will mean that Washington, D.C. will likely kick off going into Cincinnati, what's normally in Cincinnati and New York, and then the Open itself. So um, I can't say that we bought pressure. Uh, I think that we really wanted the right decision to be made and whatever it was. It's not a political answer. This is the truth. We're going to be here one way or the other. And um, I'm glad that they're uh, attempting to go forward. It's going to be very interesting. It'll be like no U.S. Open in history, not just because of the fans, but what the players are doing and how it's all working. It's going to be fascinating. Speaking, of, right speaking of the players, uh, John Isner has tweeted tonight, top-ranked American player, uh, how excited he is about this decision, saying it's time to get back on the court. 
Hasn't been exactly the same case from someone like Novak Djokovic. Not sure if he's going to show up. Rafael Nadal said if this was right now, he probably wouldn't come either, not yeah. to mention a couple of uh, the, the women top players as well, uh, Halep and uh, Barty, saying that they're not sure they're going to come either. What is it going to mean yeah. if the top players don't show up? Well, the beauty is with 128 men and 128 women in singles alone, there's always great stuff to watch. And frankly, whether it's for injury or some other reason, somebody's always going to be out. So the U.S. Open transcends any individual player or even groups of players. That really, it would be great if they can make it. But it's not that Novak won't play. Novak's got his own tour on the air right now from Serbia that we're airing in Serbia was way ahead of the game. They, they, they were, their numbers were like Korea and, uh, and like New Zealand. And, you know, they've actually got people in the stands there. So a lot of it's about the travel itself and the fact that you're going to have to be here probably for the better part of three weeks. Um, and you know what? We'll see how this turns out, right? I think they're not committing now, but there is a Grand Slam championship trophy at the U.S. Open on the line. And that tends to bring out the best players. So we'll see how it goes if they feel safe. I think they may be. The, the clock's ticking, too, on some of these players, right? There are, there are records right. uh, within reach uh, that Nadal and Djokovic are chasing in terms of Federer, who's not playing, obviously, for the balance of the year. Ken, it's good to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. Right. Good to be with you, Scott. All right, you as well. Ken Solomon, Tennis Channel. Here's what's next on this CNBC special report. We wanted to come out of this pandemic much stronger than we were when we, when we entered it. Later tonight... A Miami nightclub owner's strategy of getting everyone back in the game, back to work, and back out of the house. And meet the man behind this country's biggest black-owned bank to see what he sees two minutes away. The owner of this country's largest black-owned bank on just how bad the virus has hit businesses in the African-American community. And as businesses in parts of Florida shut their doors again due to the virus, one entrepreneur shows us his path forward. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. It's good to have you back with us. The Fed chairman today, Jerome Powell, weighing in on the economic inequality facing minorities here in the United States. The economics discipline, like every other aspect of our society, does have a troubled history when it comes to issues of race inequality. A tight job market uh, is probably the best single thing that the Fed can, can do to support gains by all low and moderate income communities, and particularly for minority communities who, who are heavily represented in those groups. That's the Fed chairman today, Jerome Powell, speaking before the Senate Banking Committee. One United Bank is the largest black-owned bank in the country. The bank says its purpose is to empower its community and close the racial wealth gap. Kevin Cohey is the chairman and CEO of United Bank. One United Bank joins us now from Los Angeles. Kevin, it's good to have you here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. We talk a lot about the crisis, obviously, which has disproportionately impacted the African-American community and, and, and small businesses. What have you seen from your vantage point? Well, just that. Uh, it is it, it, no question that losing 40 percent of your businesses is a devastating event. And that's what's happened to black Americans. So it's it's 
really challenging uh, to have seen all the effort that has went into building our communities and building our businesses and to see such a large percentage of them wiped out. Uh, but there, we believe there are many reasons for us to be hopeful as we move forward. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, One United is the leader of, of what you call the, the bank black movement. Can you tell our viewers exactly what that is? Well, it go, it's, it's all about garnering the economic spending power of black America and rechanneling it back in a, to our communities in ways that can help us build political and social strength. So the bank was organized for that purpose, to help organize black Americans to be more effective from an economic perspective in our society. And we think we're doing that. We think that uh, this is a very interesting point for Black America because for the first time, we really are organized as a people. Uh, our leaders throughout our entire history have stressed the importance of us being organized. Their efforts, plus the Internet, have put us in an unprecedented position of organization so that we could be more effective participants in society. One United Bank is designed to take that organization and to implement strategies so that we can use our economic power to create change. One of the problems is, and the numbers are depressing, the black-owned businesses twice as likely to be turned down for, for a loan. We know about redlining practices, which are driving down home ownership. You said earlier there are many reasons to be hopeful. Can we, can we change this? Can we make significant change? Oh, absolutely. Technology presents the opportunity for change for all Americans, both black and white. The one thing that COVID has taught us is the importance of technology for your business. For example, One United Bank has almost doubled its customer base. I just looked at recent numbers and since the last three months, we put on 40,000 new customers. That's in large part because of our technology, which allows us to bring in accounts all across the country uh, and service them effectively. So that, that opportunity that technology offers levels the playing field in so many ways. In the past, so much depended on your educated, education level and who you know, those sort of things. These days, that's gone out the door. And being able to use the Internet to make money is the, is the most important challenge that we all face. It offers us all the opportunity to redesign our businesses and to take advantage of opportunities that did not exist before. Speaking of, look, sometimes we all need lifelines. And and in this crisis, businesses have needed lifelines through the PPP loans, which which you were uh, directly involved in. Had you not been there, what would have happened to some of these black owned small businesses during this crisis? We would have had more failures, and 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 everyone, the government, including the government, recognizes the ability to affect change in these communities. We're on the ground in these communities. We know these people. We know these businesses, and we were also willing to do things that other institutions didn't. PPP is a good example. The, one of the main challenges of the PPP program was that institutions chose to do 
what was going to make them the most money, i.e. they processed their existing customers that, that were the, their largest customers. Whereas with One United Bank, we did exactly the opposite. As an example, our first PPP loan was to an Uber driver because we understood that in order to be effective, someone had to deal with the smaller businesses, the businesses that needed more help, the businesses that weren't more organized, and the businesses where you weren't going to make more money. Because One United Bank is also a community development financial institution, it's very important part of our role to be willing to fill that role in our community. So we all have to work together. And, and I think that's what you're seeing with these protests. That's, that's an example of all of us working together, not just Black Americans, but those who support Black Americans coming together to, to give each other a hand, to give us each other that lifeline that you just talked about. Yeah. Good, good having you with us tonight. It's a conversation, an important one, and we need to continue having it. Kevin, thank you. That's Kevin Cohey. Kevin Cohey with us tonight. Here's what's coming up next. This business has gone from 100 to zero. Clients putting the brakes on business. But next, meet a firm who has found a different way to make it work. And we really have to win that guest over even more so than we ever have before. In a week when much of the country has seen new outbreaks. See how this Miami night spot owner is bringing clients back into the club. First, our world on day 170 of the coronavirus crisis. Several bars and nightclubs in central and northern Florida have had to close their doors again this week due to virus outbreaks. But Miami so far appears to be reopening fairly smoothly. Nightlife and hospitality guru David Grutman is reopening his three celebrity-filled restaurants and trying to get his customers excited about dining out again. Here he is tonight in his own words. The first few days felt very weird, but it's... It's getting back more and more normal every day. We wanted to come out of this pandemic much stronger than we were when we, when we entered it. We really looked at our menu items, our operations, what we were paying vendors across the board, pricing, rent, everything. We've had to, you know, take our capacity and change it around to make it at least feel like there's a vibe and energy, but yet still be six feet apart. People say, how do you keep a vibe going on? We serve a lot of small plates at our restaurants, so it creates community and energy at the table. And then, of course, like last Saturday, Senator Gervais and Alesso, two of the biggest DJs in the world, DJ here. Our guests got to be surprised by having Alesso and Cedric Gervais DJ while they're having dinner. We really have to win that guest over even more so than we ever have before. Let's make sure we remember their cocktail. Let's make sure we remember the dish that they love. Hospitality has to be on a whole nother level now. Just okay is not just okay anymore. You have to blow them away. That's David Grootman tonight in his own words. Well, for almost two decades, Viva Creative produced events all over the world for clients like Maserati and Norwegian Cruise Line. When everything was canceled and revenue plummeted to zero, the company made a big pivot. CEO Lauren Green joins us from Rockville, 
Maryland. Lauren, welcome. It's good to have you on tonight. Thank you. Uh, we're good talking you, about big events in Italy, Middle East, Hong Kong. What do you do when revenues go to near zero? You've got to uh, innovate. You've got to be flexible and adaptable. And the, the best way to create certainty is to do exactly that and to figure out where there are opportunities when these big challenges present themselves. And so that's that's exactly what we did. You know, we, we literally were doing uh, an 18,000 person event on March 1st and on March 3rd, every bit of our revenue went away for the rest of the year. And so we took our talent and we immediately applied them to a, a project. It was an online project. We teamed up with Tim Shriver called The Call to Unite. And it was a 25-hour live-streamed event that was produced completely from home. Everybody was uh, in remote locations. And we, we used our talents to create content in a completely new way to in, create a new experience for people that was in, in an innovative way. You created a digital experience for the D.C. Cherry Blossom Festival, which is one of the most beloved events uh, in, in the D.C. area. I, I know from growing up in that area, everybody likes to flock down to the Tidal Basin to see them. Yes, we, uh, we saw that uh, the Cherry Blossom Festival was canceled and uh, we were uh, looking for ways that we could help. So we reached out to, uh, to the organization and said, we, we can help you. And so we, we brought this event online, created an amazing experience through video and digital uh, experiences. And uh, we're very pleased to say that this uh, became one of the top places to visit based uh, from the uh, New York Times. Yeah. You make it sound easy. Uh, I know it was tougher, though. Um, you had employees that you had to let go. Did you apply for a PPP loan? Tell me about that process, whether you got the money and, and how that's worked out. We did. We did apply for the PPP loan, and it actually helped out greatly. We didn't look at it as a way to bridge from where things were to where they were going. We looked at it as more of how to pivot the company to make sure that we could thrive as things continue to change. You know, the, the live event industry is going to continue to to change. And I think as things come back, you're going to see the use of digital technologies uh, really have a much more pervasive use in them. So we've continued to adapt and, uh, and take on the right kinds of people um, and also do training for the people that we do have to make sure that everybody has uh, relevant positions uh, going forward. Lauren, I appreciate it. I wish you well. Thanks Great. for being Thank here you so tonight. Much, it's Lauren Green uh, with us tonight. A new beauty brand disrupting the big players in the age of coronavirus. That's next, plus highlighting America's restaurants operating through the crisis. Welcome back. CNBC unveiling its eighth annual disruptor list of 50 companies driving innovation. Here's Julia Borston on a celebrity-backed beauty brand. Sales of Beauty Counter's non-toxic skincare and cosmetics continue to grow despite coronavirus. In April, our sales began to surge again as people got more used to this, I guess what they're saying is the new normal, and started to realized that they were going to need to continue to take care of themselves during this pandemic. The company, with a reported $440 million in revenue last year, sells online and through independent consultants. 
who earn up to 35% of sales. New consultants doubled from a typical month in March and grew by two and a half times in April. People are looking for economic opportunities and Beauty Counter has a business opportunity that can be built on our platform from the flexibility, with flexibility and from the safety of one's home. In March, Beauty Counter launched a new digital education platform to better onboard consultants and sales management tools to give them more data. This is Beauty Counter pushes to compete with traditional department stores and products sold at the likes of Ulta as retailers start to reopen. And it just announced it'll be selling some of its products on Sephora.com and in Sephora stores starting in August. With the closure of so many physical retail stores, you've seen people migrate online, and I think you're not going to see them going back to shopping in the way that they did pre-pandemic. Julia Borston, CNBC. You can tune in to CNBC tomorrow all day for interviews with more of this year's disruptors from that list. The five restaurants in our list tonight shouting out those restaurants operating in the face of crisis. Rhythms Chicken and Waffles in San Diego, the Lexington Candy Shop in New York City, Strikeout Wings, Nashville, Tennessee, the Reggae Kitchen in Kansas City, Missouri, and Buns and Brews, Columbus, Ohio. Tweet me at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag Thanks for the grub with the name and the town of your favorite restaurant. Send us a picture as well. We'll do our best to get it on TV. This is day 170 of the coronavirus crisis. And here are the latest headlines tonight. A study by British researchers shows a steroid treatment reduced deaths in patients hospitalized with severe COVID-19. Retail sales bouncing back in May, rising more than 17 percent. That was the best monthly gain on record dating back to 1967. Stocks rallied, the Dow rising more than 500 points. Quick look at futures now, see where we're shaping up for tomorrow morning. It is green right now across the board. Go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information all night long on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow, 5 a.m. Worldwide Exchange and 7 p.m. for Markets in Turmoil. I'm Scott Wapner. Be well and stay safe. Shark Tank is next.